Okay, so we all want to create epic stories. The kind that keep our readers salivating and on the edge of their seats, but also tugs at them emotionally. The kind that fans talk about, and that when you come out with a new installment, readers go rushing to buy, a la you know, Harry Potter back in the day. But how do we do that? How do we ensure that the plot we come up with will have that effect on readers? I'm someone who very much stresses the internal over the external. If you've been listening to me for very long, you'll know that. Uh, meaning that the internal character journey needs to almost take precedence over the external plot events, right? But let's face it, the plot events are what the reader shows up for. So how do we keep them riveted and coming back for more, no matter what our story is about? Well, that's what I'm going to talk about today, so stay tuned. Hi there, aspiring fiction author. Welcome to Fiction Author Business School. Do you want to write your stories with ease and confidence? Do you find yourself Googling how to write a fiction book or how to write a character arc? Do you want to create a fiction empire, but you can't even finish the story you're currently working on and you find yourself doubting it will even be good enough? Hi, I'm Liesl. I too have been writing stories since I was just a kid. I wanted to do something about my fiction writing dreams, but got information overload every time I looked for writing help because there's just so much out there on the internet. I wanted confidence that I wouldn't disappoint my readers and a plan to publish regularly. I knew the foundation of any author career, including the marketing aspect, is a stellar and well-written story, but I didn't know how to be sure that my story was solid. I went on a journey to figure out what really makes readers tick and how to incorporate those addictive elements into my story. In this podcast, you'll find specific tactical fiction writing tips, solutions to writing more words more efficiently, and secrets to mastering your author mindset. So put on your fuzzy slippers, grab a notebook and pen and some chocolate, and let's write some fiction. All right, so welcome back to Fiction Author Business School. Uh, Before we get started on the topic for today, I want to read a question that someone sent in. This was sent in via email, not via SpeakPipe. Um, But I think it's a really good question. Okay, so Jody says, Hi, I have loved listening to your podcasts. You make the writing and being creative sound like such a fun journey. Work, yes, but fun. My big question is, it seems that so many authors are doing what you are. They publish and then start businesses teaching aspiring authors how to write and how to publish. It makes me think that there just really isn't a way to actually make a living writing unless you're one of the big names, and that seems so hard to break into. Thoughts, dose of reality. Okay. So this is actually an excellent question, Jody, and it's something that everybody should ask themselves. But I, I think I am going to give you a dose of reality, but not in the way that you think, <laughs> okay? First of all, to give you just the short answer, so I'm not like making you wait for it, there is definitely the potential to make a living at writing. There are a lot of people doing it. The dose of reality I'm going to give you is not that it's not possible to do or that it's super duper hard to do, it's that what you see is very often skewed okay what you notice especially on social media is not what it seems so i've mentioned this before but several years ago it was probably five years ago now i mean it's been a little while amazon came out with some statistics and you know in keeping with how amazon always is they were kind of vague they were not as specific and um you know really as highly categorized as we would have liked them to be, but they were still very interesting. It talked about how there were literally thousands of writers. Let's see. Let me see if I can remember this right. 
Well, first of all, I think it started with hundreds. There were hundreds of writers, like over a hundred, somewhere in the multiple hundreds of writers, fiction authors, who were making six figures on their books, okay? Meaning, yeah, that's a small amount. It's only hundreds out of all of the authors that are publishing, but think about that. Hundreds of people are making at least $100,000 a year on their writing. Now, they didn't tell us who they were, of course. They didn't give us any specifics about those writers. I would guess that they are writers who have a very big backlist. They have a large catalog, and they have mastered all elements of, of the publishing industry. So they've mastered their writing. They've mastered their marketing. Um, they probably have help, like VAs working for them and uh, possibly you know ads managers, things like that. It is a business to them, okay? But it's very, very doable. Now... Like I said, there were only hundreds who were making six figures, but that did not say anything about the people who are making less than six figures. But guys, less than six figures is still a good living. I mean, again, because it was so vague, we can't really differentiate between the people who are making only maybe $1,000 a year and those who are making $90,000 a year. But think about that spectrum. And if there are in the hundreds making six figures, then there are probably thousands of people who are making money, even really decent money, on their writing, even if they haven't cracked the six-figure code yet, okay? So, again, the dose of reality that I'm giving you is that what you see is not necessarily reflective of the reality. You say that there are so many authors doing what I do, which is teaching either writing or publishing. Now, I'm not saying that's untrue, but it's very subjective. What exactly is so many authors like how do you define that um there may be dozens or hundreds of authors teaching like i do but there are literally thousands upon thousands of people publishing on amazon the vast majority of them do not teach okay i teach i'm gonna let you in on a little secret here i'm not making that much money teaching yeah i i sell my courses and things but and of course everybody you know likes a little extra money on the side that's great but i do this because i love it because i love to geek out about story because i love talking about it and if I try to talk about it to my friends and family, their eyes glaze over really fast, okay? So I, I talk to my microphone about it and I send it out to all of you who also love story and love to geek out because you are my people and you are my audience and I just love to talk about this stuff, okay? So I'm not doing it because I'm not making money as an author and I'm not doing it because I want to, I, I want to say I'm, I don't want to do this in order to turn it into a business and that's not necessarily true. I am, you know, using it as a business model, but it's not because I'm not making enough on my writing. That's not why I'm doing it. I'm doing it because I love it. And again, just there's there's a lot fewer percentage-wise who are teaching than who are publishing. And those who are making the most money publishing are those who probably don't teach because they're 100% of their focus is just on writing their books and publishing them. Me doing what I do, it actually takes away from my writing time. So I'm probably not making as much as I otherwise would, but that doesn't mean it's not doable, okay? So what I will say is that it's very possible to make really good money publishing books. You do have to put in the time and effort. It's not something that's going to happen overnight. You have to master your story. You have to master your marketing. You have to figure out how to publish. There's a lot of steps to it. And that's why it takes people, you know, most people a few years to get to the point where they can actually quit their day job because it takes some work, just like anything. It'll start out small. It'll start out as a side hustle and it will grow. And then eventually one day, if you just put your head down and keep at it, you'll find that you're making more money on your fiction than you are in your day job. And only then can you decide whether you're going to go full-time or not. Okay, so 
I understand your frustration, Jody. I understand sometimes it feels like you're never going to make any money at this, but it just depends on you, and it depends on how dedicated you are and how much you want it, but it is very possible for those who are willing to put in the time and the hard work, and make no mistake, it takes time and it takes a lot of hard work, okay? So that's why it feels unattainable sometimes, but I promise you, I promise if you want it, it is attainable, okay? So I hope that helps, and I hope that answers your question. I figure if you have that question, lots and lots of other people have that question too, okay? All right, so uh, let's move on then. Uh, we are going to, oh, I meant to do a, um, a personal update because I had people asking me about where I'm at in my writing, which kind of, you know, dovetails on what you uh, asked, Jody. So I am finishing up editing the first book of Dragon Magic, and I actually have kind of an interesting thing that happened to me this week about that. I've been having a hard time finishing up the editing on it. So I'm in really phase two of the editing. I have what's really, really close to a finished draft, but I needed to go through and sprinkle in themes and make sure that I'm pulling out um, details in all of the scenes, you know? So it's not a final edit, like a polishing up, but I'm just like one step before that. And I found that I was having a hard time doing it. In a way, I was kind of dragging my feet and I wasn't sure, I mean, first of all, I didn't even recognize that I was doing that until after this experience happened. And then I went, oh yeah, I was totally dragging my feet doing that, wasn't I? Um, I figured out why that I was dragging my feet. I felt like I didn't want to do it or I was hitting a wall. And then I realized it's because I still hadn't entirely fleshed out my magic system. And obviously because this is a fantasy and it's based around magic, it's called dragon magic, I need that fleshed out. And I just, it's not that I didn't know what the magic system was. I mean, I've been thinking about it all along as I've written it, but I didn't have, in a way, I didn't have the tangible details to put into the manuscript. And the interesting thing that happened was that my brothers keep telling me to read the Mistborn series. I know, I know. I'm big on high fantasy and I have not read the Mistborn series. I know there's people probably throwing rotten tomatoes at me, um, but I, I knew that I needed to read it and I've been meaning to read it for years. And so finally I bought the audiobook and I was gonna listen to it on my way to work. And I thought to myself, you know, I've been having trouble with my magic system and Brandon Sanderson is big on magic systems, so maybe that will inspire me. And sure enough, <laughs> it was actually uh, a couple of days into listening to it, I found my mind wandering on my commute home and it wasn't because the story wasn't interesting, it's fantastic, I'm loving it, but it's because it was inspiring me and I was thinking about my own story and what I wanted to, um, again, I know what the magic system does, but it was a matter of getting physical descriptions when the characters are using the magic. That's the one piece that I didn't, I hadn't really settled on. I tried a few different things and I had some ideas, but I hadn't really, um, you know, nailed down what it was going to be. And, you know, what I came up with has absolutely nothing to do with Miss Bourne. It's not me ripping off Brandon Sanderson. It was just that reading somebody else's um, magic system just inspired me and got me thinking about my own. And the funny thing about that is that I don't think it has anything to do with Mistborn. Not only because my magic system and my story is not gonna be anything like that, but because it was my own brain <laughs> putting limits on itself, putting the brakes on, and then I told myself, if I listen to this audiobook, it will inspire me, and then it did. <laughs> so the lesson I want you to take away from that is that we are our own worst enemies. You know, when we can't figure something else, I promise you, we are putting the brakes on. Okay, we are somehow blocking ourselves from that. You could also argue that listening to an audiobook, I wasn't trying to force the news. My brain relaxed and I was just listening to the story. And that's when the creativity started to flow. So once again, if you ever find yourself blocked in general or as to a specific aspect of your story, 
I promise you, if you just relax your brain, take a deep breath, and kind of let the ideas flow, you'll get past that block real, real soon, okay? So that was kind of my, my interesting story for this week about my own writing, and um, I am now well on my way to finishing uh, the editing of Dragon Magic. I'm really excited. This is the one that I'm going to put on Kindle Vela and do a little bit of an experiment, experiment excuse me, um, and I will let you guys all know how that goes. So I'm hoping to get the first chapters up on Vela within the next three or four weeks. So uh, wish me luck with that, that I can get the editing finished in that amount of time, hopefully. I'm really close, like I said, so I should be able to. And then I will get that going. So yeah, I'm really excited about that, and that's where I'm at in my personal writing, for those who are asking. Okay, so here we go. Let's talk about creating epic plots. Um, we all want to create these, and I know that especially when I got started, I really wanted to write epic story arcs, right? I wanted to write something so great that my readers just couldn't get enough. We all do, right? We think about our favorite stories, the most epic books that we love, and we think, I want to do that. I want someone to feel about my story the way I feel about that book. Um, but of course, when I was just starting out as a writer, I was so insecure that maybe what I was writing seemed great to me but would seem dumb or at least mediocre to other people, right? Well, at this point, I've been doing this for over a decade, guys, and what I've learned is that it doesn't really matter what your story is or what it's about or who the characters are, truly. It doesn't matter. There are ways to make certain that your readers will eat it up no matter what the genre is, no matter what happens in the story, and no matter what themes you're going for, okay? There's a way to make sure that no matter what the story is, you can do this. So here's the thing. Uh, most of us, when we're starting out, do a couple of things. We tend to pants our first stories because we don't know that much about craft and we're just trying to get you know, the story that's knocking around on our head down on paper. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. That's what most writers do, okay? It's kind of par for the course when you're becoming an author. But uh, for anyone who's listened to me for very long, um, what that means is that you kind of meander around randomly discovering your story. And even if we come up with an epic conclusion that way, once we're done, we're so glad just to be finished and to have a finished product and then we instantly jump into, I gotta figure out how to sell this, I gotta get it up on Amazon, let's make some money, let's get this into readers' hands, that we generally leave it as we originally wrote it, okay? We don't go back and re rework things quite as much or as deeply as we should. Um, so again, there's nothing wrong with pantsing and discovering your story, but if you're going to do it that way, you have to do a lot of work after the fact, and especially first-time authors tend to not do that. And it's understandable. You're excited to get your story out to the world. I get it. I was the same way, but it makes for a less than stellar story. The other thing we do is that when we have something we consider epic, whether it's an epic villain, an epic battle, an epic arc in general, we, we kind of tend to wait to reveal everything or anything at all <laughs> until that epic thing, the part of the story that we're so excited about, explodes onto the scene or onto the page, right? Um, so the point is, let me say that again because I kind of didn't say that very concisely. We tend to wait to reveal much about what the story is going to be until we get to the epic part of the story. Now, you might be thinking, yeah, so what's wrong with that? The answer is inherently nothing, but <laughs> there's just a better way to do things. Let, let's, let's just put it that way, okay? So discovering your story and holding back information may be 
perfectly fine ways to write a story, but they're definitely not the best ways to rivet your audience. So I'm making a differentiation here be between writing the story, the first iteration of it, and then tweaking it or I don't know, maybe intensifying it would be a good way to say it, to make sure that you are gripping your audience, holding them close, and keeping them reading all the way through. Okay, those are two different things. Um, you know, discovering the story and writing it the first time, and then really honing in on details that will make it just gripping and stellar for your audience. Um, so again, discovering and holding back information, perfectly okay, but they're not effective at all in writing epic story arcs that the audience talks about, salivates for, and can't get enough of. So once again, whatever your story arc is, is fine. It doesn't matter really what it is, but after you discover the story and the epic arc, you have to take it a step further to make sure that you grip your audience. Okay. So you now you may be thinking, now wait a minute, you just said it doesn't matter what the story is about, you can still make it epic. So if I pants my story and it doesn't matter what it's about, then what difference does it make, right? Stick with me. I know this is getting a little bit in the weeds. So let me, the best way to do this is just to give you an example. The thing that started me thinking about this and, and kind of led to this podcast episode is watching um, the latest iteration of Star Trek TNG. Now, I used to watch The Next Generation. If you don't know what that is, Star Trek TNG is The Next Generation. It's the one with Picard, uh, Patrick Stewart. And I used to watch that when I was a kid. So I sort of grew up on Star Trek because my parents really liked the original series. And obviously the original series, like the original, original Star Trek was before my time. But I was familiar with it because my parents liked it and used to watch reruns and things like that. So when TNG came out, they were so excited, right? And one of my earliest memories is being a little kid in the 90s, um, the entire family would kind of huddle around this <laughs> 13 inch screen TV that was like a square. There were no flat screens back there and we would all watch this on Sunday night. I remember it was on at seven and I was a little kid. So as soon as it was over, we had to go get ready for bed, right? Um, and we loved it. We watched it every single week. It was kind of an obsession. Well, very recently, in recent years, they have put on uh, Star Trek Picard, which is kind of a you know, 20 years later iteration of the series. I watched the first season and part of the second, and honestly, I wasn't super impressed with the writing. It was just, it was fine. It was just a little bit boring. But then they came out with the third season, and I was told by other people who loved TNG to watch it because it was really, really good. They had a new showrunner. They had probably different writers, and it was much, much better than the first two seasons. So I took the time, and I watched it, and I absolutely loved it. It was fabulous, okay? But here's the thing that jumped out at me. They base the story in the third season of Picard around an arc that they have been using since season one of the original series. And you might think, well, isn't that boring? Don't they keep going back to the same thing? But guys, it's not boring. Every time they go back to it, it's fabulous. And of course, it's not exactly the same. They put their own spin on it. They change it. They do something new with it. But it's really, really good. Okay. And I, you know, I'm not going to keep you in suspense for anybody who <laughs> wants to know. It's the Borg storyline with Picard and his connection to the Borg and all of that. Okay. And I'm going to go into this a little bit more, how they did this. So how then did Star Trek write the most epic story arc of all time, one that just keeps giving? Well, by doing what I'm going to tell you to do that will also allow you to write epic story arcs. What I said about it not mattering what specifically your story is about is true, okay? 
It's also true that pantsing your novel, if that's the way you prefer to write, is perfectly okay. But once your story has been pantsed, and once your epic arc has been discovered, if you really want to hook readers, you have to go back and set up expectations for that arc. Okay, I'm going to say that again. To really hook readers, to keep them coming back to you again and again, you must set up expectations for your arc. That is what Star Trek TNG did. Okay, so I'm going to kind of describe how they did this in the original series. The very first episode of the very first season of Star Trek TNG, uh, the captain and crew come into contact with an alien species that are called the Q, who are basically omniscient. Okay, they're very, very powerful. They're humanoid. They're, um, they're a little like Greek gods in that they're very petty and <laughs> kind of ridiculous at times, but they're very, very powerful. And in order to show their power, they basically flick, if you will, the, uh, the starship out so far into space, into um, part of the galaxy that they've never been in before. And they encounter another species called the Borg. Now, the Borg is a collective mind. It's a hive mind. And they are cyborgs. These Borg almost destroy the captain in the ship. I mean, it, it gets to the point in the episode where they're like, okay, this is it, we're gonna die because their weapons are way advanced. Um, they're not interested in peace talks or getting to know a new species. They're just out to kill everybody, right? And right when it looks like the captain and crew in the first episode of the series is about to die, the Q, who originally you know, flipped them out there, pulls them back and saves them. And the point of doing that was to say, you know what, someday you are going to encounter the Borg again, and what are you gonna do? You have no idea what's out there. You are so underprepared. These other species are so much bigger and badder than you are, and they're going to kill you. You know, your, your existence as you know it is over as soon as you encounter them for real. And then that's kind of just where they left it. And of course, after that, the captain and crew go on episode after episode, discovering different species and being out in space and, and going on all their adventures, right? Well, it took, I want to say, oh, I should have looked this up. It's like the end of the third season, maybe, and don't quote me on that. But I know that the, um, the episode is called The Best of Both Worlds. They actually do encounter the Borg. And the way that the, the show did this was so perfect because they came upon the same type of ship. Anyone who had been watching the show from the beginning knew what it was, and it was the Borg. And they, they did it so well with like the music and the ambiance in the episode. Picard turns around and says something like, uh, send, a, send a message to Starfleet, tell them that we have engaged the Borg. And it had this like, oh, you know, kind of music. Like this was epic. Um, then they go through and they have their whole encounter with the Borg. And the writers knew what they were doing, okay? You have to create an epic arc that is, you know, put, put your characters through the worst thing that could possibly happen. And in this case, it wasn't death. It was the, the board liked to assimilate people into their hive mind, in which case you lose your free agency. You no longer are in charge of your own brain, your own body, your own existence. Okay, it's losing freedom. And that's much far worse than uh, just being killed by them. And that's what happens to the captain. He ends up getting assimilated into the Borg. Now, that kind of happens at the end of season three and then the beginning of the next season. Again, I think it's season three, but if it's not, sorry about that. Um, they kind of, I mean, it, it's like a three episode arc and they get through it and they, you know, they get him back, obviously. He's one of the main guys on the show and, and move forward and all of that. But that really affects him and he's going to be different for the rest of his life. What followed after that, even though that was like 
I mean, this season went for seven seasons, and so it was in the first half, the earlier part of the series that that happened. They were able to do plenty more episodes that had to do with the Borg. They did a movie that was in theaters called First Contact that was about the Borg. And now in Star Trek Picard, they are dealing with the Borg again and the effect that it had on the captain all those years ago when he was assimilated. Okay. To this day, guys, the best of both worlds, part one and two, are fan favorites. Whenever they do like online polls and ask people what their favorite Star Trek episodes are, the you know, the fans who always watched it, those two are almost always at the very top. Okay. Fans love those. They are Star Trek legend now, okay? And that part of that is just being in the fandom and, you know, being part of a, a this world that TNG has created, right? This universe of Star Trek. But I want you to, to keep a few things in mind. You might say, well, it was just an epic villain. It's just about the epicness of the Borg, um, and that's why it was so good. But guess what? There were other villains and other species on the show that kicked the Borg's butt, okay? So they were not the most epic villains ever created, so that can't be the reason, okay? Why, if it was just about being an epic villain, were those other species and other episodes not as highly regarded? Well, it's because they weren't set up quite as well, okay? And, And this is something you need to think about as a writer because most people just don't think about it. If it was just about great plots or great story arcs in general, There have been lots of them on Star Trek that I've really, really loved. So why is this one so memorable? Why can writers go back to this again and again without fans complaining or getting tired of it or saying it's been done before? It's not because of the arc itself. It's not about what the plot was about, okay? It's about how it was set up. You have to set up the audience expectations and then pay them off. When you set up expectations for your story and then pay them off in a huge way, there is power in that, okay? There's a power that you have over your readers to manipulate their emotions, and I mean that in a good way, not in a bad way. You manipulate their emotions and you bond them to you and to your characters and to your story in a way that nothing else can, okay? So once again, it's not about what the arc is about, it's about how you set it up. How well you set it up and then how well you pay off that setup, okay? Now, why does this work? I'm going to get a little nerdy on you because I sit around thinking about things like this, okay? I've pondered the reason why this works so well. And what I've come up with is this. Number one, as I've said plenty of times before, and as we all know, human beings are wired to look for patterns. We don't even do it consciously. It's just how our brains are created, okay? If we're reading a story and we're told something's going to happen and then it does, that's a pattern. It's an expectation that we can latch onto. And knowing what might happen beforehand actually makes us feel safe. It makes us feel empowered and in control. I mean, this is one of the reasons why closure is so important for human beings and not getting it can result in trauma, okay? So when traumatic things happen suddenly without warning, those are really, really hard for us to process. Now, obviously, reading a well-written story is on a much smaller scale than a traumatic life event. I'm not trying to downplay that at all. But the same principles apply to our brains and to our emotions, okay? The second thing I came up with is that seeing someone fight against set expectations is always compelling, okay? So... If at the beginning of a story we see that someone is enslaved and there's nothing they can do about it, and then we see that they have a little bit of fight in them, a little bit of rebellion, that's so compelling, okay? So whether we feel like they're fighting a losing battle or we're waiting for them to win the day, it immediately gets us invested in what's happening. And we can't help but want to keep reading to find out what will happen down the road, okay? So that's number two. Number three, it feels like fate. 
human beings are a sucker for fate. We all are, okay? Whether you want to admit it or not. Anytime something feels like it's destined to happen, we're instantly drawn in. We start to ask, will the character fight their fate or succumb to it? Um, I remember watching a particular film years ago with my mom, and it was... Uh, it was about a young woman who was basically being preyed upon by a sexual predator, but she also knew that he was preying on her, and she was self-aware enough that she could make a decision about whether she wanted to do what he wanted her to do, because she was aware that he um, basically wanted her to be his mistress. You know, she would give him sexual favors, and he would take care of her, and so... But, she, but he was very clearly a predator. She was very young. And I remember watching this show with my mom, and my mom got really into it. And she started going, oh, what, what's going to happen? Is she going to be able to get away from him? Is this going to happen? Is that going to happen? And that's just what human beings do. I mean, at that part of the story, it probably wasn't even really obvious yet, you know, outwardly what he wanted. But we could all feel that's what it was. You know, you know, we're not idiots. We can read between the lines. And again, it just feels like that's the way it was going, and so then you want to know, will she or won't she? You know, when something feels predestined, we want to know that. Uh, will they end up together or not? Will the character beat the villain or not? Will they die or will they live? Will they find what they're searching for or go home empty-handed? Will they go mad or will they stay sane? It's the kind of thing that draws the reader in and refuses to let them go. Okay, so the next question I know I'm going to get, because I always get this, is what if I don't write high fantasy and my type of story doesn't deal in destiny? How can I make this work? I promise you, no matter what, fan or what uh, genre you write, you're already doing it. It's built into the story. Um, you can certainly have an overt prophecy in your story or a herald. A herald is a, a character archetype that foreshadows some kind of doom. Um, you know, someone that says, you are going on a quest, it will be very dangerous. Okay, so you can definitely have those if that's the kind of story you're, te you're telling. But you don't have to, okay? If you write a different genre, then it's, it's just basically about genre conventions, right? When Elizabeth meets Mr. Darcy, finds out he's handsome and rich, and then hears him insult her, there's inherently the ring of fate there. Okay, the way the story is set up, we know this relationship is going to be significant one way or the other. Now, maybe at the outset we don't know how, but either they're going to end up uh, liking each other, loving each other, hating each other, killing each other, okay? We want to know what's going to happen because clearly there's some reason that the writers are showing us this relationship and this dynamic. So it feels like fate. They were fated to meet, and now what's going to happen? It's like fire and ice, you know? what kind of interaction are we going to end up with? Readers will inherently feel the ring, the ring of fate in your story. Again, it's a way of setting up your epic story arc, setting expectations for it, and then your readers won't be able to help but keep reading. So in romance, the way you do this is probably, it's always gonna be about the meet cute, right? Establish that there's an attraction between your two main love interests, but oh, what a shame, they can't be together because of X, Y, and Z opt obstacles. Fate. Feels like fate, right? If you're writing a thriller, like a Jack Reacher type of thriller, it's a common trope to have the main character and the bad guy meet. And the first time, in the first meeting, the bad guy is going to kick the protagonist's butt, right? And maybe that's years before the bulk of the story takes place. That's actually very similar to what TNG, um, the next generation did that I just told you about, right? They come face to face with the Borg. The Borg kicks their butts. They would have died if they hadn't been rescued. And then years later, they come back around to meeting that same enemy. Fate. 
See what I mean? So all you have to do is apply this to any genre or story type that you write. But again, you have to set expectations for your story arcs, meaning you have to set them up in advance. You have to foreshadow them. Okay, very, very, very important. So the next question is, how do we do this? What is the best way to set up expectations for your story, to foreshadow the arc, everything that I've just said? Um, first, let me go back to the pantsing aspect. If you are a pantser and have to discover your story first, cool, do that. But then go back and set up expectations for the epic arc that you have now discovered. So the major difference with pantsing as opposed to plotting and planning is that you have to pants the story first and then you have more work to do after the fact because you have to go back and set everything up, okay? So do you see why it doesn't matter what you write, what genre, what the story arc is, who the characters are, what the theme is? No matter what you write, you can do this. All you have to do is go back and set it up and kind of leave these tantalizing hints and clues for your readers and make your story feel like it's fate, like it's so epic and this is going to happen no matter what. And I promise you that that will draw your readers in. So, so many of us, as I was saying at the beginning, like to hold back information until the epic arc happens, but that is the opposite of what you should do. You need to be dropping breadcrumbs along the way. The more you tell them, the more invested they will be, I promise, okay? So again, how do we set up the expectations in order to make our story arcs feel like fate? Number one, set it up in advance. Okay? You can do this so many different ways, guys. The sky's the limit. You can use dreams. You can use dialogue. You can use vision. You can use events. Um, as I said, you know, you can have them meet and things go down that make them hate each other. And you can do that with, you know, love interests or villain protagonist pairs. Either one. Because either the villain's going to kick the protagonist's butt and then they're going to have to have a showdown later. Or as we know so often in romance, they might hate each other to begin with, but then eventually they're going to fall in love. Okay, just follow that template. Even if you're not writing a romance, even if, you know, just take that and say, how can I apply it to the story that I'm writing? Uh, number two, make the stakes very high, both personally and plot-wise for your protagonist. If you really want an epic story arc, it has to be a big deal. It can't just be something they shrug off. It can't be just be something that they overcome in a page or two, okay? We're dealing with life, death, uh, freedom, um, the loss of a loved one. We're dealing with um, sanity and insanity. I mean, these have to be really, really high stakes. And when I say plot-wise and personally, there, there needs to be something physical and tangible in the plot, but also something going on internally for the protagonist. If you can marry those two together, the stakes will be very, very high, and that also will hook the audience and make them want to um, find out what happens, right? So number three, you have to pay it off in the most epic way possible, okay? Once again, I kind of just said this, but the protagonist has to come close to losing everything, almost dying, um, sacrificing tons in order to win. You know, they have to really struggle with their internal morals on this one, okay? So you have to set it up in a big way, you have to make really high stakes, and then when you actually get to the epic part, man, you better make that thing so difficult for them to overcome, so difficult for them to win the day, if they even do win the day, right? And number four, internal arc, internal arc, internal arc, internal arc. <laughs> and what I mean by that is, once again, I'm gonna go back to kind of my foundation, and that is that the internal character arc really needs to take precedence. What happens internally needs to affect what's happening externally, and them overcoming their internal limitations is what's going to help them, 
help them overcome what's happening externally. So let's let's um, give an example of that. Um, going back to Star Trek, the captain deals a lot with the trauma of what happened to him with the Borg. Okay, it's very much something that was taken from him in a victim sort of a way. Okay, it was his freedom. It was his mind. I mean, they take over your mind. They control your mind. I mean, it's very very traumatic, right? And when they do all these other Borg episodes, he has to figure out his internal stuff. He has to figure out that trauma and transcend it in order to beat the Borg again the next time they, you know, clash with them, that sort of thing. If you want to talk about Pride and Prejudice again, that's another one too, right? Elizabeth has to overcome her pride and her prejudice in order to end up with Darcy and be happy in order to understand who Wickham really is. So the two always need to be intertwined. So... The internal arc is just as important. All right, guys, I have rambled on for a while today, so let's do a quick recap. Um, in order to write really, really epic story arcs, and we are talking about plot-wise, but just in general too, there are a few things that you need to do. You need to set them up in a big way, okay? Hint at what's going to happen, tantalize your readers, tease them with foreshadows, okay? Make it a big deal. Do not hold back information until the last possible minute. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that you need to give away what's going to happen. I'm not asking you to give spoilers, but you need to hint at it. You need to give them kind of some signposts about what's going to happen, okay? Number two, you need to make the stakes very, very high, both plot-wise and personally for your protagonist. Number three, when you get to that epic part, you need to pay that off in the most epic way possible. The protagonist has to come dang close to losing everything that they've been fighting for, okay? And number four, really make sure that your internal arc is there and that it's married with what's going on externally in the plot. If you do that, what happens in your plot will feel like fate and it will draw your reader in and you will never have trouble with your readers not coming back to you. They will know that you know how to tell an epic story and they will buy every single thing you ever write. I promise. Okay. This is, it's not the easiest thing to master. Let's put it that way. It takes some practice and the more you do it, the more you think about it, the more you map it out, the better you'll become at it. Just like anything, you need to get a few books under your belt. The more you write, the better you'll become at it. So I'm not going to say, oh, just do this X, Y, and Z and it'll be fine. You know, you, it's something that you need to practice and something you need to master. But what I want you to do is go back to your work in progress, whatever you're working on, and think about this. Look at what the climactic moment is for your protagonist, and then go back to the beginning and say, how can I set this up? How can I foreshadow this? Can someone have a dream? Can uh, someone show up to tell the protagonist that maybe something wonky is going on? Um, do I, can I have like a herald character that's going to foreshadow doom events? You know, whatever it is for your story and your genre, try to set it up. Then you gotta make the stakes really high. Once you get to that climactic moment, what does the protagonist stand to lose? And if it's not a big deal, you need to make it a big deal. You need to make it the worst possible thing they could have ever gone through. At the beginning of the story, ask that. What is the worst possible thing in their mind that could happen and you need to make that happen to them by the climactic moment, right? You need to pay off the setup in the most epic way possible. Um, try to come up with an example. If you say, oh, I'm going to set it up so that it seems like this person might, I don't know, fall off a cliff and die. And then when you get there, they slip, but they jump back up and they're fine. Guys, that's not really paying it off in the most epic way possible, right? That wasn't a very big deal for what you set up. 
So make it so they do fall off the cliff. And meanwhile, when they fall off the cliff, they lose things that were really, really important to them. And by accidentally falling off the cliff, the world is going to end. I mean, you need to make it really, really epic, right? And make absolutely sure that your internal arc is there and that it's entwined with the external so that by overcoming the internal, they will also overcome the external, okay? I know I just made that sound really complicated, um, but if you take what I said, just write those steps down and then go look at any story that you love, any book that you've ever read and thought that was amazing, and it, it will all be there. You will find that all of those things in epic arcs, okay? So I'm gonna stop talking for today because this was a long episode. Um, if you have questions you want me to answer, you can email me or you can go to uh, SpeakPipe, which is speakpipe.com forward slash the prolific author. I'll put that in the show notes. And uh, if you have not downloaded it yet, I have a free PDF on how to finish the beginning, middle, and end of your story. It's free and it will help you hopefully anytime you get stuck trying to uh, hash out the events of your story. Okay? So that is what I have for you this week, and I hope you have a wonderful week of writing. Get out there and write some truly epic arcs. Guys, this is what's fun about it, right? Get out there, brainstorm, free write, relax your brain, and come up with really, really epic arcs, and then how to communicate them to your audience by foreshadowing, by paying them off, all of that. It's one of my favorite parts of writing. It's one of my favorite parts of storytelling. And remember that only you can tell the story that's knocking around in your head, and there's somebody out there waiting to read it, okay? So get out there and write some amazing stories, and I will see you next week, same time, same place. Bye. Thanks so much for listening today. Before you go, would you be willing to do me a solid? If you found any value at all in this episode today, would you be willing to share it with other authors just like you in the hopes that they might find some value in it as well? Happy story crafting this week. Remember, only you can bring the world the unique story that you are trying to tell. Only you can succeed in your own unique way in getting it out of your mind and your heart and into a medium where it can reach thousands if not millions of salivating readers. You don't have to worry about failure because there is always a market for awesome.